Welcome to First Baptist Belton. By God's grace, we aim to be a gospel-centered people who know Jesus intimately, serve Jesus passionately, and share Jesus globally. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoy the following message. All right, well, good morning. How are we? Good. It is good to see all of you here this morning. For those worshiping online, we're grateful for you. Grateful that you have tuned in to worship with us this morning. Now, you may be asking yourself a really good question. Why in the world does he have that shirt on? Yeah? And no, it's not just because it's my color. I know. I know. It brings out the, the, the flesh tones in my skin. I know that. But actually, it's because this week is VBS Emphasis Week. In just a couple of weeks, we are going to have a bunch of kids storming into this room all to hear the good news of Jesus. And so we are super excited. Now, here's what that means for my household. That means that my garage is filled with foam boards and paint is scattered all over the place. As a matter of fact, if you were to have seen a picture of, of my two girls yesterday, they had paint from head to toe because they were painting and getting ready for the set for VBS. And so we're excited about that. So this morning after, at the end of the service, we're going to spend some time together as we pray for our volunteers. We've got a small army of volunteers. If you are still interested in that, you can do that. We're going to talk more about that here in a little bit, but we're going to pray for them. We're going to pray for um, all of the kiddos who are going to be here, and and Lord willing, we're going to see uh, several of them come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior for the very first time. So we're excited about that. Another thing we're excited about this morning is we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And that's going to be really fun and great as we uh, conclude our service together as a family celebrating the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, what you need to know this morning is we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, I hope you do. Uh, We're going to be in Matthew 5. We're covering verses 17 through 20 this morning as we continue our series, As It Is in Heaven. Now, you need to know that this morning we're, di- we're, we're diving right into the deep end of the pool, okay? So if you got your floaties, you may need them. We're leaving the kiddie pool. We're diving in the deep end. As a matter of fact, most commentators, most theologians would say, hey, you know what? If you're going to preach the Sermon on the Mount, this would probably be a good one to skip because it's one of the hardest passages in all of the Bible. But I don't think it needs to be. I don't think it needs to be. As a matter of fact, I think that uh, the Bible is very clear, and I think we can dive right in, and I think it'll be just fine. So... A lot of pressure this morning, but it's going to be great. We're going to do it together. You ready? Okay, Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. If you are willing, Abe, we'll go ahead and stand as we read and honor the word of the Lord here. Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, read with me. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Well, I have not come to abolish them, but I have come to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a dot, not an iota, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20, for I tell you, Jesus speaking, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. 
So you may recall our series, As It Is in Heaven, right? We're talking about two different kingdoms. There's the kingdom of the earth, right? And then there's the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus, by his very person, is ushering us into this new kingdom where he alone is king. And because he is king, he has the authority to usher in a new law. This new law is called the law of Christ. That's what we're talking about this morning. The Sermon on the Mount is him ushering in, teaching us the new law of Christ. And so it's, it, it can be complicated, but it need not be. So that's what we're talking about this morning is the new law of Christ. And there's two questions that I want us to answer this morning. So I've got two questions for those of you who are taking notes. Two questions. And then we're going to dive down deep into a couple of promises, okay? So two questions and a promise. Number one, what does Jesus mean by the law of the prophets? When Jesus says this in verse 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets, what is he referring to there? Well, he's talking to two different things. So the law being the first five books of the Bible, right? So the Torah, the law of God is the first five books of the Bible. And then we're talking about the rest of the Old Testament. So the prophets, what the prophets had prophesied over um, into the New Testament, okay? So that's what we're talking about. And one author, he says it like this, that Jesus here, referring to the law and prophets, he's referring to the Mosaic covenant given by God to his people. And I want you to know that, notice this. And how that covenantal relationship plays out throughout the Old Testament. So again, when he says, I've not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill him, what he is saying there, he's alluding to the fact that Jesus is bringing great continuity to, or with God's proceeding, his saving and covenantal work that he began in the Old Testament. He's bringing to completion all that God began in ancient days. That's what he's doing. That's what this is doing. So Jesus says, I've come to fulfill it. That's what he means. It is as the early church father, Chrysostom, here's what he would say. It's not a repeal of the former, but rather it's a drawing out and a filling up of what was already there. So in other words, Jesus is continuing the story of God with his people by taking the story to new depths, offering new insights and expanding it for all who would come to know him and to follow him. And so that being said, the law and the prophets, right, are broken down into three categories. You need to know that this morning. There's three categories that the law and the prophets are broken down into. And the first category is doctrinal teaching. The second category is prophetic teaching. The third category being ethical teaching. And so what Jesus says here is that I have come not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them, and he fulfills all three of these particular things, okay? He fulfills all three. I want to show you that. So doctrine, so we'll talk about doctrinal teaching. Jesus fulfills, he satisfies the doctrinal teaching of God. Doctrine just simply means a set of beliefs. So we're all on the same page. When we say doctrine, what we're talking about is a set of beliefs, and so in that regard, the Old Testament is a narrative that provides us a set of beliefs regarding what is true of God, what is true about man. It even shows us God's standards for man and then how mankind has failed to live up to those standards. It shows us God's character. It shows us a little bit more about our character and the nature of that relationship. And so as we turn the page and we come to the New Testament, what John is going to say, referring to Jesus in verse 1 of chapter 1 in the book of John, he says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and hear this, and the Word 
was God. Again, that's referring to Jesus. So when we turn to the New Testament, what we see is that Jesus is, in fact, the very Word of God. It's incredible. That's why we can say along with Paul, and that's why Paul would write in first, or Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, he says, For in Christ all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So again, by his very person, the very word of God, Jesus has the power and the authority to speak on behalf of God. So in that, he fulfills the doctrinal teaching, the set of beliefs, the doctrinal teaching taught in the Old Testament. He actually fulfills that in the New Testament because he is the words of God. He is the word, right? So not only does he do that, in terms of his teaching, but he also does that in his life. We'll see that again here in a minute in his ethical teaching. I love what Bishop J.C. Ryle, he says this. This is great. You'll love it. He says, in Christ, the Old Testament is the gospel in bud. The New Testament is the gospel in full bloom. Isn't that good? I love that. So Jesus, he satisfies the doctrinal teaching of God, but then also number two, Jesus satisfies, he fulfills the prophetic teaching of the Old Testament, of the law and the prophets. What we mean by that, when we refer to Jesus' fulfillment of the prophetic teaching in the Old Testament, what I'm talking about here is that from Genesis chapter 3 on, right? So in Genesis 2, right, we learn that man decides to go their own way. And then in Genesis chapter 3, God shows up into the garden and he makes a promise. He sets a prophecy of a day that is to come where where he is going to send an offspring and that offspring is going to crush the head of the enemy, the head of the snake, going to put an end to all evil. He's going to begin to create all things new. So from right then and there, Genesis chapter 3, the entire Old Testament looks forward to the climax of this offspring and his arrival. Well, as we turn to the New Testament, we learn that Jesus is that offspring, right? So all of the Old Testament looks up to Jesus as the climax of Old Testament history. And matter of fact, if you were to read in Matthew chapter, leading up to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew would say the following phrase four different times. I want you to see this. Four different times. He says, all of this took place to fulfill what was said of the prophets. Now when he's saying all of this, here's what he means. He's talking about referring to Jesus' virgin birth. He's talking about the hometown of Jesus being Nazareth. He's talking about John the Baptist's proclamation of Jesus as that coming Messiah. Remember, John says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, that was prophesied in the Old Testament. He's referring to Jesus in the beginning of his ministry. Again, so when he says all of this took place to fulfill what was said of the prophets, he's saying all of this took place so that you and I would know this morning that Jesus fulfills the prophetic teaching of the Old Testament. So again, by this statement, Matthew's trying to help us see that Jesus' death on the cross, the climax of Old Testament history by which the whole ceremonial system Hear this, the whole ceremonial system, both priesthood and sacrifice, is found in its perfect fulfillment in Jesus. Wow. It is, as Paul would say in Colossians chapter 2, verse 17, he says, They, speaking of the prophets, were but a shadow of what was to come. 
They were a shadow, whether in word or whether in type. They were a shadow of what was to come. But then Paul continues and he says, but the substance belongs to Christ. He satisfies the prophetic teaching of the Old Testament. He is the Messiah. We know that. But then number three, number three, Jesus fulfills the ethical teaching of the Old Testament as well. By ethical teaching, we're simply just referring to the moral law of God, the ethics of God. Now, if you were to read the gospel accounts, what you would see is that as Jesus begins his ministry, he didn't have a whole lot of good things to say of the religious elite and the religious leaders of his day, right? He actually criticizes them for their view and their understanding of the law. He literally says, as we're going to continue in over the next couple of weeks, he, he says over and over again, he uses the same phrase. He says, you have heard it said, but I say. So what Jesus does is he actually corrects their theology he actually he helps them with their meaning and their teaching and helps them see how they have actually perverted their understanding of the law, but then also how they have messed up the teaching as well. It's not that he's annulling what was previously said, but he is revealing its true depth and meaning as it was always meant to be understood and to be lived out. So that's what we're going to be talking about over the next 16 weeks. He's saying, hey, listen, this is how the law should be understood. This is how you and I are to live it out. And by the way, just so you know, if we do not get this, if we do not understand what we're talking about this morning, we will have little to no hope of understanding what we're going to be talking about over the next 16 weeks. And we certainly will have little to no hope in actually living it out, which is God's desire as we follow Christ. I want you to know that, in essence, the attitude of Jesus towards the Old Testament is not one of redaction. It's not. But rather, it is one of organic continuity. Organic continuity. By his life and ministry, Jesus offers the true and fulfilled meaning and understanding of the law and the prophets. That's it. So here's our second question. You ready? So what does he mean by the law and the prophets? Second question is, is what does he mean by until all is accomplished. What does he mean by that? Look there in verse 18, he references it. He says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Well, what does he mean? Well, he's two things. Jesus is helping us see that the law is accomplished first and foremost through his life, his death, and his resurrection. It's actually the argument that Paul makes in Galatians chapter 3, specific to verse 13. Here's what Paul writes. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Did you catch that? Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. By the way, that's us in this room. So then the law was our guardian until Christ has come, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ you all, meaning followers of Christ, are sons of God through faith. And so when Jesus says on the cross, it is finished, what he is referring to is what Paul would write in Romans chapter 8, verse 4. He says that Christ has satisfied the righteous requirement of the law for you and for me. It is finished. He's saying literally, it is accomplished. I have fulfilled. I have satisfied that which was prophesied of me in the Old Testament, in the law 
and the prophets. Number two, Jesus is also referring to what we've talked about over the last couple weeks, the already but not yet. Remember, he has ushered in a new kingdom, right? But there's also a, a, a kingdom that is to so he's ushered in the new kingdom, but then at the same time, right, it's partial fulfillment in his very person, but it will be fully realized at his second coming. It will be fully realized at his second coming. Speaking of that, Jesus says this in Matthew 24, verse 35. He says, heaven and earth and all that is in them will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And Jesus, he's making a promise that while all things on heaven and on earth will pass away, his word, his words to his people living in his kingdom will never pass away. Jesus is instituting the very eternal law of God. Now, here's where all this gets complicated, okay? So that's that. Jesus has fulfilled the law and the prophets. But now here's where it all gets complicated because Jesus makes some really bold statements in in verse 19 and 20. Verse 19, here's what he says. Therefore, because of what we've said so far, whoever relaxes one of the least of those commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom. Whoever teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Here's what he means by that. Greatness in the kingdom is achieved through perfect obedience to the law of Christ. Don't miss that. Greatness in the kingdom is achieved through perfect obedience to the law of Christ. Now the second thing that we have to contend with is what Jesus says in verse 20. Here's what he says. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's Jesus. That's his promise. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. You have to hear, this is what Jesus is saying, entry into the kingdom of heaven is contingent on a righteousness that conforms to the law. I don't know about you, but if you're like me in this room, you're an A-type personality, you're you're a task-oriented person, you're going, we are in trouble. I'm reading this and I'm thinking, man, I got no hope. Because what Jesus is saying here is that our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees who, by the way, have devoted their entire lives to studying, memorizing, teaching, and obeying over 240 laws. And just so we're clear, that's 240 laws. You're right. Wow. I struggle with 10. 240? Listen, what that means for you and for me in this room is that we are in trouble. We are in the deep end. We're treading water, hoping to keep our head above the water because what Jesus is saying here is for us to enter into the kingdom of heaven, we would have to exceed in the task of memorizing, strictly obeying 240 laws from the Old Testament. And I know from from knowing some of you, knowing me, there is no hope in that. But this is where it all goes wrong. 
See, this is where we, this is where we go wrong. See, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, oftentimes we become content with an external righteousness, an external obedience defined by laws, rules, and obligations. But what Jesus does for them and what he is going to do for you and me this morning is he is going to flip the script on its head. He's going to flip the script. See, he is teaching us that true righteousness is not about an external obedience to the law, but it is far more radical than that. It's far more radical than that. It is about an inward righteousness of the heart. It's easy to obey laws. It's impossible to change a heart. It's impossible. And so what you need to know this morning is that Jesus cares far more about the state of your heart than he does about your external obedience. It's not that he doesn't care about your external obedience, but here's what Jesus knows and what he's helping us see this morning is that our hearts are, as Jeremiah said, deceitful and wicked. What you and I need this morning is not external obedience, but we need a heart transplant that changes our heart that then allows us to live in obedience to Him. Jesus' desire here is not a superficial and external kind of obedience, but an inward righteousness that includes the mind, that includes our body, and it includes our motive. So he's going to talk about over and over and over again as we unpack his Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is going to go after your heart. He's not going to be satisfied with your obedience. He's going to go after your heart again, knowing that if he gets your heart, if he wins your heart, transforms your heart, he doesn't have to worry about external obedience because it'll flow from your heart. So this means for us this morning that Jesus demands that our whole selves live in obedience to him. It's a holistic kind of obedience that impacts our head, our heart, our hands. And you may rightly be thinking, that is impossible. And you'd be thinking rightly. Because it's impossible. It's impossible. But see, here's the good news. You want to hear the good news? I, she talks to me. I love that. <laughs> Keep doing it. Um, here's the good news. The good news, and not only the good news, but here's what separates followers of Jesus from the rest of the world. Here's what separates the kingdom of the world versus kingdom of heaven. You ready? Here's what separates it. It's a promise God gave to Jeremiah and Ezekiel forecasting the new covenant. Here's what he says to the prophet Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 33. He says this, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. He says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. He is forecasting a day Right? That there will no longer be separation between God and man, but rather he will dwell once again with his people. That he will be their God and they will be his people. To Ezekiel in chapter 36, verse 25, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. 
From your idols, I will cleanse you. Notice who's doing the action. It's not you. It's not you in this room. You can't cleanse yourself of your idols. You can't cleanse yourself of your uncleanness. He says, I will do it. He says, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. He says, I will put my capital S, spirit, within you. And notice this. Notice this. You ready? And I will cause you to walk in my statutes, and I will cause you to be careful to, be, to obey my words. Wow. Guys, this is the reason why Romans 8, 4, some of the sweetest words in the Bible, it's because Christ is satisfied through his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. He has satisfied God's very own righteous requirement of you for you. It's like a high jumper standing before a high bar that is set, understanding that he has no shot in jumping over that bar. Yet Christ says that the righteous requirement is that not only that you meet the bar, but that you exceed it. And you know you can't do it. And here he's saying that I will do it for you. That I will satisfy the righteous requirement, my own righteous requirement. I'm going to satisfy it for you on your behalf. These two promises are forecasting a day that in Christ, God would give us new hearts. Hearts that beat for him and for him alone. That he would be your king. Not, anything, not any lesser thing that this world has to offer you. You think money has a shot at that? Cars have a shot at, at a at God who would give his son for you? No. You can't buy your way in. You can't earn your way in. You can't achieve your way in. It only comes through Christ and his righteous requirement that was met, that was satisfied on the cross for you. He says that I'm going to give hearts enabled through the Spirit to live in obedience to Him so that entry into the kingdom of heaven is no longer about our external obedience, but it's about a righteousness purchased for us on the cross and a new, a new heart given to us by the very Spirit of God. Wow. So as we turn the corner next week, Here's what we all need to understand. This is what we all need to be on the same page with. Jesus has in mind, as we're going to learn, a righteous life that is a whole self kind of righteousness. It's not a cheap righteousness. It's a whole self kind of righteousness that begins at the heart and overflows into your life, into your head, your heart, your hands. This is what he's referring to. I love what John Stott says. He says that Jesus is referring to a deep obedience, which is a righteousness of heart that is possible only, only in those in whom the Holy Spirit has regenerated and now indwells. You know, I think there's a reason why in the New Testament you didn't hear people say, hey, are you a Christian? They would say, hey, have you received the Spirit? 
Because it is the spirit that is an indicator of a righteous person who has, been, who has received the righteousness of Christ based on their faith in his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Because if you do not have the spirit, hear me, look at me. I want everybody looking at me, eyes right here. If you don't have the spirit, if you've not placed your faith and your trust in him, and if the Holy Spirit is not indwelling in you, you will not be able to live out the things that he is requiring of you. You won't do it. You will be exhausted. You will be frustrated. You will be burned out. And all of your effort will be an effort of self-righteousness. You'll be self-righteous. Because you can't earn your way in. You only receive it by Him. Now, if you've placed your faith and your trust in Him, and I hope you have, then you have received His Spirit. The moment that you say, yes, oh, man, I recognize I'm a sinner. I understand that I am separated from an eternal God, a holy God, and I want a relationship with Him. And you believe that Jesus came to this earth. He purchased your righteousness, the righteous standard of the cross. He purchased that for you on your behalf. Satisfying the wrath of God on your behalf. You said, yes, I want that. You repented of your sin and you began a relationship with Him. In that moment, God's Holy Spirit, the God of the universe, third person of the Trinity, then comes into your life he transforms your heart. He does as what we learned in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. He gives you a new heart. Heart surgery just took place. If that is you, then living in obedience to the commands of Jesus will be restful. They will be life-giving. And hear me, they will lead to greater kingdom righteousness. They will lead to more and more and more and more fruit in your life. And so that is why before we jump into this sermon, into the Sermon on the Mount, that is why it is so imperative for you and me to understand this. For entry into the kingdom, it's not about effort, it's not about works, but it's about Christ and His righteousness purchased for you on the cross. And you got to hear me, this is not just for those who are not Christians. Certainly not less than that but it is also for us in the room who are. It's an invitation for those who have placed their faith and their trust in Christ to recognize that even today, our self-effort, our self-righteousness will not get us into the kingdom. It's to recognize that our self-righteousness is no help, but it belongs in the grave. It belongs in the grave. It's about Christ. And his righteousness lived out in you. It is to surrender our righteousness at the foot of the cross and to say with Paul in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. If you want to know what the secret sauce of this service or the, of, of this sermon that we're going to jump into next week, if you want to know what the secret sauce to that is of living that out and experiencing true life as Christ has meant for you to live, if you want to know what that is, Paul just gave it to you. It's simply to say, I have been crucified with Christ. 
each day to get up, your feet hit the floor, and you say, God, today I have crucified my flesh. I am crucifying my flesh. I am burying my flesh into the grave so that I might live to you today that you might live in and through me, that the interactions that I have with people, that they may not see me, but they see you. The way that I love, maybe, may they, they see you in the way that I love people. May they see you in the way that I, I give of my time and the way I give of my money, the way that I give of my worship. May they see you. It's about him. It's about his righteousness. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. Jesus, I'm reminded of my helpless state this morning. So often I spend so much of my time trying to, trying to earn your approval, trying to earn your righteousness, trying to meet that standard of righteousness that you said, that you tell me in your word that I have to exceed. And yet Romans 8, 4 rings so clear and so true and so sweet in my heart and my mind this morning as I am reminded that there's no amount of work, there's no amount of effort that can ever get me there, but it's through Christ and his righteousness, his work on the cross for me, God, that I no longer stand here before you with rags. But God, you have clothed me in the righteousness of Christ. God, may that be true of all of us this morning, Lord, that we don't, we don't stand before you with rags, but God, we stand before you as your children, as son, as daughter of the King clothed in nothing but your righteousness, that when you look upon us, Father, you do not see a child of wrath, but you see your child. God, I pray for that this morning. God, thank you. May you fill us with gratitude. May you fill us with peace. May you fill us with joy. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If you would like more information, please visit fbbelton.org or call our church office at 254-939-0705. We are located at 506 North Main Street. We hope to see you soon.